0: Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. No, we have not been raiding the archive to give you flashbacks. That is new sound from a campaign rally held by Donald Trump just last weekend in the town of Wellington. Ohio. He is back out on the stump. He's going to do an event in Florida soon drumming up support for congressional Republican candidates ahead of next year's midterm elections. It means that Donald Trump is back in the public view. And in a way, he's not been that far out of sight for very long, because right now there is a slew of new books about every aspect of the Trump administration, shedding new light on what happened then. And one of the books that's really leapt out, to me at least, is called Nightmare Scenario Inside the Trump Administration's Response to the Pandemic That Changed History. It's by two Washington Post reporters, Yasmin Abu Talib and Damian Paletta. And I know on the podcast we've talked a lot about how the Trump team really botched their handling of the pandemic from the very start. But this book contains new information on the battle that Donald Trump himself had with the disease. It happened in those weeks leading up to the election and it turns out was much more serious, much more grave than we were led to believe at the time. So my first question to one of the two books co-authors, Yasmin Abu Talib, I began by asking her to take us back to those hours in October 2020 when Donald Trump first got ill and what were the first signs of trouble.
1: So if you remember, that was a really chaotic week for President Trump. So the the weekend before he got sick, September 26th, the White House threw this big party, no masks that eventually migrated indoors for the president's Supreme Court pick Amy Coney Barrett. And that's what later a a lot of people who attended that event would get COVID. So there were questions about whether that was a super spreader event. And then that Sunday, he met with Gold Star families. And I can't say back up, stand 10 feet. You know, I just can't do it. And I went through like 35 people. And as we reported in the book, this hasn't been reported before, he was unhappy after that event at his staff. He told his staff, those people were getting really close to me, and if they had COVID, I'm definitely going to get sick. The important thing to note, of course, is that people weren't wearing masks because that's how the president wanted it. He had this massive disdain for masks, which is why you see the White House being so careless with all these events, with tons of people, which really were against public health protocols at the time. And then two days later, he does the debate with President Biden. And I think that's the first real sign of trouble. Before I came here, I was a private developer, I was a private business people. Like every other private person, unless they're stupid, they go through the laws and that's what it is
0: he passed a tax bill
1: because he's really erratic during that debate he's deteriorating as the night goes on even fox news and sort of more republican leaning sites were questioning what was up with him and that he seemed really off that night and just had a poor performance The president has been exposed to close aide, Hope Hicks, quoting Hope Hicks. And then Thursday, we find out that his one of his closest senior advisors, Hope Hicks, uh, is sick with COVID. And that was an infection that the White House wanted to try to conceal from the public. But it was reported. And then there are questions swirling about the president because they had been in close proximity all week. So. The reason I take you through all those events is because I think they're important in, we'll never really know where the president got sick, but there are a number of instances leading up to his infection where he could have contracted it or been spreading it to other people.
0: And at this point, I mean, the, the, the pandemic was really in a, in a grave place in America at that time.
1: Absolutely. So the doctors had been warning for months and months and months about this devastating fall surge. And in the first week of October, you saw the crest of the third wave beginning. So you had tens of thousands of new infections a day. The death rate was climbing up alarmingly fast. And by the time the president contracts coronavirus, 200,000 Americans have already died of it. So the country is an, an absolutely devastating place at this point. The White House is trying to move on and focus on the re-election, but the virus just won't let them because at this point, this is when things are really starting to take yet another turn for the worst, and it ends up being the most deadly wave of the pandemic.
0: So you mentioned that in that period, events like the celebration of the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court and other events with Gold Star families and this masklessness that comes, as you said, from the top. Donald Trump doesn't want people around him wearing masks. He's set the tone. And yet we also know from everything that was written about Donald Trump, even before he got to the White House, that he was a notorious and is a notorious germaphobe.
1: I'm also very much of a germaphobe,
0: by the way. (laughs) He's tremendously worried about his own health. He really doesn't want to get sick. And this is something I've never myself understood. I cannot get the contradiction between, on the one hand, this germaphobe who's always hand sanitising, etc., and doesn't really want to meet, you know, too many people and shake their hands, and yet the recklessness in the face of COVID. You've really looked at this with your co-author. Tell me how you square that circle.
1: So you're absolutely right. The former president was, is a notorious germaphobe. He even had a favored brand of antibiotic hand wipes that he used to hand to people who came in the White House. But for whatever reason, he saw masks as a sign of weakness.
0: I think uh, wearing a face mask as I greet presidents, prime ministers, dictators, kings, queens,
1: I don't know, somehow... I don't see it for myself. And there would be advisors who would urge him to wear a mask, to model it for the country. And he just refused to. And you could see that from the very beginning of the whole mask debate, because when the CDC finally decides, yes, we're going to recommend that everyone wear a mask in early April, they send the president out to announce it. And he undermines it by saying, "Uh, you can wear a mask if you want to. It's voluntary. I'm not going to wear it. The dichotomy here is that while he is a germaphobe and he was afraid of getting sick, He saw the virus as this impediment to getting reelected. And as long as you acknowledge the virus was a real and deadly threat and a mask was a constant reminder of that, then it undermined his re-election message that everything was going back to normal, there was nothing to worry about, the economy was booming even when all the numbers pointed in the opposite direction. So there was this disconnect in his mind, I think. He had had so many close calls through the course of the year, starting in February, that it just made them, th- he, he had been like Teflon to everything else. Nothing really stuck to him. The Mueller investigation, the impeachment proceedings, nothing seemed to really hurt him. And I think he thought that he could do the same with the virus.
0: The US President Donald Trump has just tweeted that he has tested positive for COVID. I'm going to read it. Eventually, his luck does run out and you've described how it did. Obviously, they come back, the team from the presidential debate in Cleveland against uh, Joe Biden and they realised that, you know, something is wrong here. Just talk us through, you know, how bad it became in terms of the symptoms he had uh, and what the team around him then decided to do.
1: So what we found was that President Trump was far sicker than acknowledged at the time, and his doctors and his aides were not being fully forthcoming about the extent of his illness. So. When he, he he gets the test result, or at least when he reports it, is at, at around 1 a.m. that Friday morning. Uh, I think it's October 2nd. And then through the course of the day Friday, his condition rapidly deteriorates. He has to be put on oxygen. His oxygen dips really low into the 80s. And at this point, his doctors are fearing... That he's going to have to be put on a ventilator and when he gets sent to Walter Reed and he makes that walk across the south lawn over to the helicopter at the time they had said this is just precautionary it's the president we want to take every precaution possible but when Damien and I spoke with sources who knew about his medical condition at the time they said do not take for granted the fact that the president was sent to Walter Reed we were really worried and we were not sure he was going to make it out of there and the way his advisers eventually convince him to go to the hospitals, they say, you can walk to the helicopter on your own right now. We don't know if you're going to be able to walk there later. You might be in a wheelchair or you might be have to be taken out on a gurney. So this is your chance to go when you can still walk to the helicopter on your own.
0: So when you say that they weren't fully forthcoming, they certainly weren't with the public, and your reporting brings that uh, makes that really clear. Were they fully forthcoming to him of how uh, grave his situation was becoming?
1: Yes, our understanding is they were forthcoming to him. But the interesting thing is when we we talked to a, a number of government officials across the White House, the health agencies, elsewhere in government, most people did not know the extent of his condition. Most people, even in the White House, even in his administration, were kept in the dark. When we asked a number of people, how did you find out the president was sick? Did someone call you? Did you get briefed? They said, no, I found out from his Twitter. I woke up and saw the news from his Twitter. So that's that's just an indication of how bad the communication was all around that weekend. And I, I even remember reporting at the time and talking to people at the White House who were so frustrated because they weren't getting instructions on how to protect themselves, what the protocols were at work. And if you remember, it wasn't just the president there was a massive outbreak at the white house that weekend of course you know we report when he goes that weekend he gets access to this monoclonal antibody from regeneron which wasn't authorized for use at the time he gets this these great exceptions made for him he he makes a rapid improvement from there and we also reported that his doctors did not want him to leave the hospital when he did he had only been in the hospital for 4 days at that point and he's in his late 70s, he's obese, he doesn't exercise very much. So he had ticked a number of these high risk categories. So they're worried, like, yes, he's making an improvement, but he could also have a backslide or organ failure because that happens with a lot of patients like him. But at that point, he's completely defiant and insists on going back to the White House.
0: And in terms of the special treatment he got, because that, I think, was politically important, he, were, were exceptions made almost at the level of, of what? sort of Did the FDA suddenly grant extra new approval to drugs that hadn't been tried before? Or were these drugs that some people were getting...
1: The monoclonal antibody wasn't available to the general public at the time. A drug like remdesivir was authorized for use, but there were constant shortages of it. He got access to that. He got access to dexamethasone, which is a widely available steroid, so a lot of patients can get access to that. But I think just the level of care he got and the fact that he was able to get access to this combination of drugs is something that would be unavailable to pretty much any other person.
0: You describe in the book how one senior health official the director of the Centers for Disease Control Robert Redfield well you say what that what that figure Robert Redfield was doing at that time
1: He was Praying the entire time the president was in the hospital, and he was also consulting with President Trump's physician Sean Conley, who's who was the White House physician at the time about his treatment. He and and Redfield was the one who told Conley Trump should not be leaving the hospital right now, and Conley said, "I know, but he won't listen to me. He's really he's determined to leave." So Redfield is is praying this entire weekend, not only that the president recovers, but that he'll come and he'll have a moment of humility, and he's going to finally tell people this is serious, wear a mask and protect yourself. If I can get it and the first lady and my son can all get it, then anyone can get it. And he talks to some of the other doctors on the task force and they share his optimism that if this isn't the turning point, then nothing is going to be it. This has to be the turning point. So when he watches the president's return to the White House and he's walking up the stairs, Redfield is praying. He's still holding out hope. And then when Trump gets to the top of the stairs on the balcony and rips his mask off, at that moment, he, he just knows it's over. He knows Trump wants to be this macho man again. He, there is no humility from this whole experience. Nothing is going to change. And, the, and he knows that they're heading into this deadly, deadly winter.
0: I want to move away from just this very extraordinary particular case of Donald Trump and talk about presidents and illness before Team Trump, because he was not, and the Donald Trump team were not the first to, as you put it, not be fully forthcoming with the public about how sick the man in the Oval Office truly was.
1: No, of course not. This is not the first time. I think the difference here, you know, before we delve into some of the other examples, is that because of social media and because of, frankly, how poorly Trump's team coordinates messaging. It was much more obvious at the time that they were concealing information and they weren't being forthcoming because there were so many conflicting accounts. If you remember at the time, Mark Meadows had had done a quote unquote on background briefing with reporters, but the cameras caught him. So everyone knew it was him who was saying the president's not out of the woods yet. Right after his physician, Sean Connolly said he was doing better and improving. So it was easier to track what was and wasn't consistent.
0: Yeah. I mean, those examples, they are really egregious. I mean, there was John F. Kennedy was getting injections, I think, of cortisone to deal with really egregious back pain. Franklin Roosevelt was disabled. I mean, he was in a wheelchair, and yet they would construct photo ops to conceal that fact so that the American public imagined him being fully able-bodied when he wasn't. Woodrow Wilson had a stroke. Dwight Eisenhower had a stroke. I mean, what is it about, do you think, this office of the president and this unwillingness to admit to the kind of frailty that is just human.
1: I think so much of the office of the president depends on a projection of strength and power and leadership. I think these men rightly or wrongly believe that disclosing the extent of their illnesses undermines their strength and power in that in that position. So if they do get better, they're seen as more vulnerable, they're seen as potentially weak, and they might not have the same respect. One of the, the striking things about this incident with President Trump, and this was not the only time this has happened, I think this happened with President Wilson back during the Spanish flu, is that there was no plan when, when Trump was gravely ill to a plan of succession in case he became incapacitated to swear in Vice President Pence. And while there is a desire for the president to always look like he's in command and in control, this obsession over that image can sometimes undermine them from within because they're not willing to have, And in the President Trump's case, they're not even willing to entertain the discussions about a plan of succession if they need it.
0: And I'm sending a clear message to the world. America is back. I mean, the assumption now is that everything is different and that the Biden White House is the kind of chemical polar opposite of everything in the Trump White House. Joe Biden is 78 years old. He'll be 79 before the year is out. Do you have any guidance or any sense? I know you cover health for The Washington Post. Do you? Has anybody told you whether this White House has thought about these kinds of scenarios, whether it's coronavirus or something else, given that the man in the Oval Office is towards the end of his 70s.
1: I think it's important to note that they came into quite a different situation because when they took over, both he and Vice President Harris and some other senior members were vaccinated, were fully vaccinated. So they were more protected. And of course, they took many more precautions. People wore masks. They didn't let a lot of people come into the West Wing. So they were they were taking appropriate precautions and kind of abiding by public health guidelines. But I think it is safe given this the experience of this team that there is some plan if the president were ever not able to carry out his duties. I think you just have to deal with the realities of his age and the the confounding factors that come with that. But to be frank, no one has talked to me about what those plans are.
0: They wouldn't. And what this makes me remember is that the two presidential candidates, and perhaps it's telling what happened to them, the two candidates who did go for full transparency and openness about their uh, health situation. were the first one, John McCain, who revealed all his medical records, which showed he had not been in particularly good health and was had a whole litany of health problems, and Hillary Clinton, who took a very funny turn during the 2016 election campaign, and of course the people who really went after Hillary Clinton in a major way, saying she was too weak to be president, were Rudy Giuliani and. Donald Trump but here's a woman she's supposed to fight all of these different things and she can't make it 15 feet to her car
1: give me a break right uh, there is an irony in that and there there was a similar irony when Coronavirus started descending on the United States, and everyone was remembering when Donald Trump had blasted President Obama for Ebola and not letting people fly into the country. So that that's not the first instance of it. But if you remember with, with Hillary Clinton, it was caught on camera, so they had to disclose it. And it it followed her for a long time. I mean, people do really pounce on, especially opponents, do really pounce on candidates or elected officials when there is some sign that their health is deteriorating. I think there is a fear that they lose some sense of respect or control or influence when they appear vulnerable in that way.
0: Now you and I have focused in this conversation very much on how Donald Trump himself coped with being sick and uh, and I know the, wi- the wider purpose of the book is to talk about how the pandemic was handled by the administration. Now that some months have passed, what's your sense from your own reporting of how Americans are viewing uh, the first phase of the pandemic and whether or not and this is the political edge of it whether or not they blame Donald Trump and the Trump administration for mishandling the pandemic and whether you're seeing that in polling numbers given how many hundreds of thousands did die is it your sense Americans blame Donald Trump the ex-president for that
1: That's a great question. And I think, like you indicated, so much of that depends on your politics and your political party. President Trump doesn't bear all the blame, but that environment starts from the top and there was a pretty toxic environment. I think there are a large group of Americans who did blame his handling of the virus and did not feel that he was going to get the country back to normal and back to a safe place. And I think there are a number of people who also believe that he was unfairly blamed for everything and villainized. And the media and Democrats have have pinned too much of this on Trump. So I think it really depends on your political party and who you support. But I do think it's indisputable that a majority of Americans did not approve of the president's handling of the pandemic. And that's what ultimately cost him the election.
0: Now, Yasmin, we always ask our guests on the podcast a what else question. So this week's what else question Actually, it's related to what we've been discussing, and it's not about your book, but about the fact that there is a slew of books about Donald Trump hitting the bookstores right about now. In one of them, there's the claim that the former president got into a stand-up row with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of the Military. And then there's another one that claims William Barr, his attorney general, uh, believed that Donald Trump's claim to have won the election was, in Barr's words, bullshit. So my question to you, uh, Yasmin, is not about your own book, but what else are we learning? What is the takeaway from all these other books that are coming out?
1: I think there's still a lot to learn. I don't think President Trump's personality is a mystery to most of us. But I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think the depth of the dysfunction and the consequences of that are, are things that people can sometimes only talk about or only feel comfortable talking about once he's out of office. So in our experience, we found that we learned a lot of new information after the election and then even more after the president had officially left office because now people were willing to finally speak candidly and share experiences that they hadn't shared. And I think that's probably what you're going to see from all of these books. I will say our book is entirely focused on coronavirus and the response. So it's it's a little bit different than some of these other books that detail those episodes. But I do think in all of these instances, there are new things to Learn. And also, last year was so chaotic and so much was happening all the time that these books really give us an opportunity to understand the full picture, the full narrative, and how it all fits together, which you can't always tell in real time. And I think what we'll find, and we definitely found this in our experience of doing this book, is that the full picture and the full narrative, when you understand the depth of the failure of government to protect its people against coronavirus, and I'm sure these other books will detail a number of other instances, is far more devastating than any one crazy outburst or anecdote taken on its own.
0: Yasmin Abutaleb, co-author of Nightmare Scenario Inside the Trump Administration's Response to the Pandemic that Changed History. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Look out for a link to the book Nightmare Scenario on today's episode description on The Guardian website. And make sure to listen back to Wednesday's episode of UK Politics Weekly as Jessica Elgott and Raphael Baer look at the fallout from the resignation of the Health Secretary Matt Hancock last weekend. And for something a bit different, last week The Guardian launched a special audiovisual project called Auditorial. The team here collaborated with Google and the Royal National Institute for Blind People to showcase the possibilities of accessible stories for blind and low vision audiences. It's done, created from the ground up with those audiences in mind. So make sure to check out what they've put together. We'll add a link to that on the web page as well. But for now, I'm off for the rest of July. In this seat will be my terrific colleague, Joni Greaves. So do join her. The producer is Danielle Stevens, and I'm Jonathan Friedan. Please stay safe out there, and thanks, as always, for listening.
1: For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.